You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I am Sarah Custer and joining me today is someone new to the THE podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Eliza Compton, and I'm a content curator at THE Campus. And tell us what you do as a content curator day in and day out on THE Campus, Eliza. So my job involves commissioning content for the website, um, whether that's written articles by academics or videos or even podcasts. Right. And you've spoken to two academics uh, for today's episode who actually started their own podcast, and they did it with a very specific question in mind. Tell us about that. Yeah, so two academics from the University of Queensland's Faculties, Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences told me that they'd have quick chats over a sandwich and coffee and they found themselves at these times trading ideas and war stories and solutions to teaching issues. And they realised that it was these meetings, the ones in corridors, the ones over coffee, these kinds of exchanges were the ones that mattered the most uh, in terms of teaching practice and exchanging ideas and definitely part of the glue that makes campus life the alive network that it is. Mm, interesting. But um, as we all know, so much of campus life has moved online, which mm. means that these encounters happen less. Um, so our two academics wondered how they could recreate that sense of connection and recapture the benefits of those chance meetings. And the solution that they came up with was to start their podcast, Higher Ed Heroes. Uh, And they used the podcast to create a space where academics can come in and speak and share the little tips and the examples of good practice that can make a huge difference in day-to-day teaching. Hmm. Whenever lockdowns first began a couple of years ago, it was those brief interactions with people, either a colleague or just someone that was selling me coffee. It was those little things that I miss the most about day-to-day life. So I can definitely relate to what they're talking about here. Uh, Yes, I think we're all feeling the lack of those incidental exchanges. Mm. Um, And in order to make the podcast conversations as close as possible to real life encounters, Mm. they've banned any buzzwords and jargon. And they've done that in quite a creative way. Let's have a listen. We are very happy to have you here and very excited to be talking about Higher Ed Heroes. Um, Could you introduce yourselves for us? Yeah, why don't we do it in the way that I'm actually not introducing myself, but my co-conspirator. In which, which case, I want to introduce uh, Associate Professor Alistair Stark, who is a wonderful researcher in public policy here at the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland, and who in many ways has been my co-conspirator with things related to teaching. And maybe I should also say that because you will hear his accent in a second, Some people here down under in Australia also refer to him as a kind of down under version of Billy Connolly. (laughs) Thanks very much. I'll introduce uh, Dr. Sebastian Kemp. He's a 
peace and conflict researcher in the School of Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. He's an all-round good egg, and he sounds more like Werner Herzog than Billy Connor. <laughs> well, you're both extremely engaging uh, in the podcast. Why did you decide to start the podcast? Well, we have been chatting to one another for many, many years. And essentially what we talked about when we talked about teaching were those really small but transformative moments that we have had in our classrooms and moments that in a way we felt brought the classroom alive, excited our students and really sparked up the learning there. And, and that kind of conversation was something that we have been chatting about for a very long time, you know, communicated just on a bench, usually outside our building. Al tended to have um, perhaps a sandwich. I had a coffee. Um, we could have called this the sandwich and coffee podcast, but basically what we felt was that these were the essential questions about teaching that we were really interested in. And we felt that we didn't have a space for um, an exchange of these ideas in the formal institutions here at university. So we had to make our, we formed our own little space. And after doing this for many years and after learning from one another, taking advice from one another, just, just having all sorts of great ideas, we thought, hey, why don't we move this into the format of a podcast and, and make the podcast that kind of bench with a sandwich and a coffee to chat about practical things about the classroom. Mm. And I think what we ultimately thought, Eliza, was we were getting more out of the sandwich conversation on that bench in terms of what we were doing in the classroom than we were in more formal institutional spaces that related to teaching in our university. Those spaces, if we think about them, are not really about the small things that can really change classrooms. They're about policy. I mean, indispensable. We need policy, but they're about teaching policy. Or often we see centres of excellence for teaching that are designed to enhance practice, but they operate on a different level. You know, they're about big design, state-of-the-art language, you know, about driving forward teaching on a, on a bigger level. And we, we just came to the conclusion that sometimes just regularly sitting with a friend and saying, you know, what do you do? And here's the problems that I have. And how do you address those problems was just so much more valuable than many of the experiences we, we had with those more formal institutions and spaces. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to create a place where we could um, broadcast other people's conversations. That's, uh, it's so interesting. And you started the podcast in January 2020. What have you found has been the most valuable thing about the podcast format? I think one of the things that I get in terms of feedback is definitely the accessibility from the listeners. Um, unlike other forums, uh, we often get told, for example, oh, I listen to your podcast when I'm walking my dog or I listen to my, your podcast when I'm on the bus. People seem to have a bit of a routine because it's only short, about 15 minutes, because it's conversational, you can um, access and use it and hopefully remember it in a whole lot of easy ways. So for me, it's just that accessibility. Uh, and again, because I think we opened 
our introductions got a bit shorter as we've actually learned how to do podcasts. But we really made a big play when we introduced it of saying, this is not where you will hear that jargon. You're not going to have to listen to it and then go and decode it and look up the pedagogical manual and find out what the hell we're talking about. It's meant to be something that's consumed on the move, on the run, walking the dog, and, and, and be easy to comprehend in that way. What happens when you do hit some jargon? Well, this was one of this was one of the key things we felt, and that comes, you know, and that that thing is we don't want to have jargon. We don't want to have these these buzzwords like. Uh, you know, research-led teaching, graduate attributes, uh, flipped learning. And, and we're, we're, we don't want them, not because they might not be important concepts, but because we feel that these are getting thrown around and no one really knows what they mean. What we want to do is when these get mentioned by anyone, and that includes Al and me as co-conveners, we have a, a no buzzer that... Anyone can hit, and it's a reminder that, hey, we've now used something like graduate attributes, okay? And that means let's not use this term. Let's actually unpack it, boil it, boil it down to what it actually means and how we can use this in a way that everyone can actually understand and fill it with meaning in that particular way. So that buzzer, which was actually Al's idea, was uh, something that we had from off the beginning. Um, and it's great because that buzzer, it, you might know this, like it's like there's these yes buzzers and no buzzers, but you hit it and there's eight or nine different ways in which you can say no, and you never know what's coming up. So it's a, a little bit of an in-joke here. Mm. It's good because people look at it, a big red buzzer that shouts no at you, and you see them censoring themselves as the hand moves across, and they stop whatever buzzword was about to come out of their mouth, and they reformulate it. And that's the kind of sandwich conversation. Like, I don't want to sit on a bench with Seb and talk about, you know, X, Y, Z and go, I just don't get it. I want just to sit and, and hear what inspires him, hear what he's proud of, you know, hear what he's taken a chance at and failed. I don't need to hear those. So we naturally would do that, wouldn't we, when we have a conversation or a tea room conversation, we wouldn't be throwing these phrases in. They're best left for other spaces. So it's good to see the buzzer I mean, I'm always excited to press it just because it's quite good fun, but it's good to see the buzzer working as a, as a preventative measure. And, and also, Eliza, maybe to come back to a, a point you asked us about earlier, you know, what inspired that, that format? And I was just uh, felt reminded of the fact that, you know, Al and I wanted to replicate those very down-to-earth kinds of exciting conversations that we had that really were from peer to peer and focused on the practical stuff of teaching that we've had. And for us, it was more like, okay, let's try out a new medium, which is fun to work with, audio. We hadn't really done that before, um, but let's also bring in others, right? It wasn't just that, you know, let's have Al and me talk to each other about what we do in the classroom. Rather, it was more, we are the hosts, and we are inviting other really interesting teachers and focus within 15 to 20 minutes per episode on like one particular aspect that kind of makes them stand out. That is kind of something that others potentially could use. Al would say that they could steal. 
I say that we could adapt and to adjust in our own classrooms. Well, that leads me very nicely onto my next question, which is how do you decide your guests and topics? It's a hard process. And uh, my job is to bring in buzzers and hit, hit a big red button. And Seb really drives the hard yards of organising this thing. So he's probably got more to say than me. But we, we started with our faculty. We knew great teachers. We just knew in our faculty there's so many great social science teachers in our, our faculty. So we had a, a list ready. They would then give us names. Um, we went through the people who have won teaching awards. We, 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 we searched through people who seem to do interesting things. And then there comes a point where you've kind of dried up. <laughs> and then there's hard yards about, you know, searching around different institutions for those names. It's, it's tough to do. But what I have been amazed at is we're actually still circling back to our faculty. We were just about to do recordings uh, uh, next week and we're finding more and more people and people don't actually broadcast the wonderful things that they do. So we, we go to the people that win awards, we say, you know, this sounds amazing, will you talk to us? And then, you know, two years later, there's somebody 100 metres away who we're going to be talking to them about they teach uh, statistical modelling through the movies of Denzel Washington. We're about 100 metres from our office. We never knew that they did this, you know. So this, we just continue to find just by almost kind of institutional digging and, and circling again and again these wonderful stories. Mm. I think just to add on to some of Al's points here, just the predicament Al was describing is that we know you know great teachers, you've heard about other great teachers, but quite often we don't even know some of the amazing stuff that's being done just next door. And I think that shows us something about the issue of like the lack of a conversation about these kind of practical things at university level, right? That we, we don't have them focus. They're not the focus of our own teaching and learning committee, because that's really about the administration about teaching and learning, let alone knowing what other schools do within the university level and what other universities do and so on and so forth. So the, the advantage with the podcast then is, of course, that you can have that conversation that goes across these different compartmentalized units. But coming back to like, how do we go about preparing this? And so on. that's really where the hard work goes into. Um, I think number one is that we, you know, once we have names and people have suggested them, we actually vet every single person for whether we feel that, you know, they are suitable for a podcast. And this is not to um, discredit any colleagues, right? It's like they can do amazing things, but if you can't really articulate that in a way that works for the medium of a podcast, then um, unfortunately we can't have that person on there. And we also test them out on the jargon-free, buzzer-free kind of thing. And you will be surprised how, or maybe not surprised, academics live in their heads, how hard it is for people to boil these abstract things down to like, what are you actually doing? Give us an example of a really great particular exercise, right? So we vet everyone. Um, Elle, of course, has understated 
he's very much involved in, in, in that whole process, in particular the vetting. And for us, I think the benchmark is, would they pass the sandwich and coffee bench test, right? Could you have that kind of conversation with them? And then it's a matter of, you know, making sure that we diversify across all sorts of things, junior, senior, different disciplines, in terms of gender, in terms of the topics that we cover, and kind of try to have a bit of a spread here. Mm -hmm. In terms of the selection as well, it is tough. We start with a big list at the start of the, the year, really, and we go through the topics and we say what makes us excited. And then sometimes we get excited about things which aren't easy to implement. They're much bigger things. Sometimes they appear in the podcast because, you know, people t we want to talk naturally and we end up going into bigger areas. And sometimes we have to audit ourselves because we get really excited to try and focus in and be quite brutal and say, look, this is this is a recording for those time poor people who who don't have the ability to substantively redesign and change everything. It's about the small things. So we do quite a lot of self-auditing. I don't think we always get it right, but it, it, it's it's a long process to get to a person. It sounds also like it really speaks to the importance of those informal networks and that actually doing the podcast has given you an opportunity to develop um, your own connections across campus which um, is uh, yeah. is a really interesting thing absolutely absolutely you know and what we do is we go to people's office and we encourage them to speak about everyone has that one thing maybe two things maybe even three things that they're really proud of that one thing that they do, they're proud of it because maybe it's a bit different and they're proud of it because they can see it working. They can see that transformation in the class and you look forward to doing it and everyone's got them. We get this ability to go and speak to people about it, you know? So we can go into a colleague's office and say, like, what's that one thing you do? And you can hear the kind of pride, you can hear the enthusiasm. And as soon as we hear that, we go, oh, this, this person will be great. It's really nice to do it. It really is. And yeah, you... You, you know, one person leads to five people, you know, five people leads to 10. And we, we yeah, we've been very lucky. And, and people listen to the podcast and I think, yeah, they can see that it doesn't take a lot of effort, but also hopefully see that they get to speak about that one passionate thing that they love. And have you had a, a favourite piece of advice that has come up or perhaps something that you thought that's the craziest idea I've ever heard and then tried it and it worked? <laughs> I, I've tried lots. Like Seb said, steal earlier. I am absolutely stealing as much as I can and uh, claiming it as my own. Um, there's been some wacky things that I've just not never been brave enough. But Blake McKimmy, there's a wonderful recording by Blake McKimmy, where he effectively introduces a detective story into his course to teach psychology. You know, a full orchestrated detective story, a whodunit. It's, it was so impressive um, and well beyond. Does Lydia Kavanagh, I think, was another one who just does these flipped classrooms. I would hit the buzzer now if I was recording ourselves, but she does these massive flipped classrooms with engineering students that I've just thought, wow, that's beyond me. So I, I, I go for the small ones. I stole a great one from uh, Linda Sheveler in one of her earlier uh, uh, podcasts. She talked about using 
bodily movement to break down barriers with international students and how using body movement gets you away from traditional Western scholarship that can intimidate. And she would literally get students, I think she used a ball of string, I can't remember specifically, she would get a ball of string and put the students on a Likert scale of agree to disagree across a room. And just getting them moving, getting them laughing, getting them talking, I thought, oh, I'm going to steal that. And I knew Seb and I had a sandwich conversation once where he put up argumentative positions at different points in the room and gets them all to move around the room. So immediately I was thinking, oh, Seb said that to me. She does that. And then I just, I do it now in my first year class around climate change questions. So I get the 200 plus students to go down the front where I stand and I go and sit in the audience by myself, in the chairs by myself. And I've got Likert scale positions that I put up and I ask them questions about climate change. Is it caused by humans? Obviously, they all go to one side. Can politicians fix it? Now they start to break up. And then you get them to explain it. And again, I just I just love that. I, that's to me is the podcast in a nutshell, me stealing these gimmicks and 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 using them. I don't know what you think, Seb. You'll have a few <laughs> too. Yeah, like I think uh, what I find interesting is that I can take some idea, some inspiration, probably out of more or less every episode that we have had, and they become too many in a way to implement. So what I've started doing since we run the podcast is to kind of pick one or two for the coming semester, depending on how big they are. So for the semester, which here down under starts at the end of February, I've now decided to do two things um, that have inspired me. One is the realization that what really brings out student learning is to regularly poll students and have them survey every every single learning activity that they've experienced. So after each lecture, after each tutorial, after each seminar, I'll give them two quick multiple choice questions of like Likert scale. I feel that I really learned a lot in this last session. And then some other question and they poll this anonymously and it's about then having chance in the last five minutes of the lecture of the seminar to put the result on there for everyone to see and then openly talk about okay how could this be improved so this is like based on various studies we had covered this in a episode with John Hattie and I thought you know what I'm gonna try this out this coming semester and the other one I actually stole from uh, L himself, because we had one of the recent episodes uh, recorded on some of the stuff L does, which is every after every 20 minutes of a normal lecture, he does what he calls a, a, a 20 minute moment, something that is not a lecture is happening, that's practical, that's interactive, that can be playing rock, paper, scissors through lollies in order to explain Marxism. It can be all sorts of really amazing things. So um, while I'm not pretending that I can be as creative as L, I want to kind of use this as a kind of very deliberate thing of, okay, if I have 20 minute blocks and then I want to slot in something meaningful, how would I actually do that? So, mm. you know, there's, but there's so many of them. And I think what is beautiful about this, the, like with the podcast is, you know, it's not, I think people might sometimes think, oh, 
you know, like Al and Seb, they are both in political science at UQ. So maybe it's just a podcast about political science but, uh, and, and teaching in that field, but far from it. You know, we have psychologists, we have people from medicine, we have, we've got civil engineers. And what is really amazing is to get insights into what it is that they're doing in those disciplines or in pharmacy and to sort of see that, hey, there is something there that doesn't matter which discipline you're in, but it's something that could be really useful in, in the area that I'm teaching in. And I think that's the big plus here to kind of open up that space. Mm. And sometimes, just to add on just one final thing, sometimes it's not actually a practice. Oh, sometimes you just get reminded of a disposition that you might have forgotten about. You know, everyone will tell you, go in to a lecture room, be positive, <laughs> get your energy going, you know. Maybe you've forgotten that. There's a wonderful uh, podcast episode. I think, is it season one or season two, with James Arvanitakis from... University of Western Sydney, not only does it contain wonderful suggestions for bringing a lecture room to, to life, but he reminded me about his disposition, which is orientated towards social justice and respect for students. And that was very much something that I had when I was younger and living in Glasgow. Uh, uh, kind of over the years that I kind of slipped and I, I moved on and I got different attitudes and different dispositions and just listening to him and his passion, it was a small thing that reminded me of it and it gave me a bit of energy. So sometimes you don't get a trick or a gimmick or, or something. You just get reminded of an attitude or a disposition that, that's really crucial. So it sounds like speaking to all these different uh, academics uh, from different disciplines has changed um, in some way how you both think about teaching um, and about the possibilities. Absolutely. A absolutely. Like, I think, I mean, Seb's point there that he's going to survey students, it's a really brave thing to do. Like, it's a risk-taking process to do that. That one in particular, I think that's something that we've become. We've become braver about trying things. We've become more comfortable with risk-taking as we speak to people who take these risks, fail, adapt, succeed a little. And we've come to realise that risk-taking is a crucial part of moving your teaching on. And, and we do it in different ways. But I think this kind of regular uh, taking of small risks and then building up from there is it's become much more central to my approach to teaching. And, and I guess what that means is my teaching has become less static. It's not. It's no longer simply about having a really decent course that you, you can arrest your laurel on and say, I can do this well. Now I'm, I'm constantly thinking about two to three incremental changes in every course, every semester, having a go at them and reversing. That's what these podcasts have given me, not just the stuff that I steal, but the, a bit more courage, I guess, maybe. When we sometimes approach people and say, hey, we're doing this podcast called Higher Ed Heroes. Would you like to, you know, talk about whether there is something that you do that we could talk about on the podcast? And the reaction that we sometimes get is that people are like, well, but I'm, I'm not a higher ed hero or heroine, right? Like, I don't do anything really awesome. I don't think I'm qualified for this. And, and I think that 
this is a misunderstanding of how we use this because Al indicated this already, what you get amongst, I think all the people we talk about in the podcast is that at some point they decided to just be brave and to experiment and to try something new. And if you want to do that in front of a small class or a huge class and you open yourself up to the risk of actually failing, then that is brave. That makes you a hero. And that's what our focus was on, to inspire a bit of a change, to inspire a bit of a desire for experimentation, to try something out, right? And, uh, and then in, in a way, that's what it has uh, further opened up for me, that, that feeling that, yes, this is like in flux, I'm going to use more and more, use the teaching as ways to experiment. And of course, once you've taught for a number of years I think you're more confident in actually doing that but you know in the end um, I don't see the podcast primarily about what it has done for me I mean that's not the format for it it has a nice side effect I get lots of ideas but it really is about trying to foster a conversation trying to bring that those, those kinds of conversations, those insights that we feel we are so lacking at university, make them available. They're free. People can listen to them. And, you know, we, we now, it started off within our faculty, very, very small. And then it became wider university, Australia. We have now people uh, featuring on that from, from other countries. And we can see how people now start downloading it from so many different countries and I mean that's in a way what we're aspiring to is that hopefully it will trigger that kind of sense of being brave trying to open things up amongst people mm. elsewhere and who are your listeners are they principally um, teaching academics or are you finding that the podcast is also reaching um, other parts of the university perhaps or even beyond the higher education system well, we have very, very good analytics with our podcast provider, the platform that hosts our podcast. It only it doesn't tell us who is listening. Um, it tells us where people are that are listening, um, how often things are downloaded, and so on. Um, but you know, we have now listeners from from seventy different countries who are tuning in, and that's wonderfully exciting for something that we just started out as a little experiment for for ourselves but we get lots of unsolicited uh you know emails or people posting something on our twitter facebook account and stuff and then you can tell that these are i would suspect predominantly people who work in tertiary education there's a couple of high school teachers in there as well right and then sort of generally interested other people, but I think it's a niche that really appeals to people who work within higher education. And sometimes, scarily, we get emails from our vice chancellor of teaching or our dean, don't we? Uh, just to just to remind us that they're listening. It'll <laughs> 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 be, be a scary experience to be reminded. <laughs> And how do you think the pandemic is affecting cohorts of students coming through? There's a sense perhaps that each year now the students are going to be affected differently. Have, has that um, appeared in the podcast um, from other teachers' experience or, experiences or perhaps your own? 
Yeah, I think we deliberately took a decision, didn't we? A strategic decision not to go down the pandemic route because last year was so challenging for us as teachers. You know, we don't have to go over it. We probably trigger a few bad memories. But, um, you know, we spent, we've spent the last two years really focused on how to maintain excellence, maintain quality in the pandemic. And we felt as though we wanted to kind of try and give a little bit of hope and a little bit of optimism and talk about teaching as it was, as it's always been, in the hope that that will come back. So we took that decision with the podcast to keep going almost as if the pandemic wasn't on. But I think in terms of teaching, you know, again, there's, there's an optimistic story here. I mean, we can look up and down our corridors and see colleagues who struggled to turn on a PC doing Padlets and running Zooms, uh, uh, tutorials, and getting with the program <laughs> that our younger students are born with and live with. So there's a bit of optimism there. And and, and from the other side, from the, uh, from the demand side, you know, students have got a bit of more agency and autonomy because of the technology. But then I think there's also a thirst and a need for the face-to-face stuff. You know, our whole thing is predicated on those moments that people are proud of. Uh, and as teachers, I think that's that's our fuel. You know, when you when you look at that class and you you know you've done your job well and you see the lesson, um, that's our fuel. And I think that's been denied. And some students feel that. All teachers, I would imagine, feel it. I know we feel it. Um, yeah. So I guess there's like every big crisis, opportunities and, and, and damages to be counted. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Seb, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Yeah, so um, Al and I, as he indicated, were very strong on the idea, let's not, let's not make COVID a focus and the shift to online teaching. There were so many debates happening at that particular point. And, but one thing I would like to add to this is my own personal strong belief um, that if you place your primary considerations about how to shift everything into online gear, what tools you have in order to do things, what apps are available, you're actually doing a disservice to the quality of the teaching. And I strongly, strongly believe that the better way to go about thinking about this is to first of all, think about what is it that you want students to learn about and really become you know, courageous in this and to try to experiment. And only then look into how you could translate this into an online environment. Otherwise, if you do it by thinking about how do I do this in an online environment? Oh my God, now I have to do everything online. I've never done this before. The, the default position, and we've seen this across, I would say most universities globally is that you know, people have really like downsized what used to be perhaps a two hour lecture, now online is just a 20, 30 minute kind of video. What used to be really innovative courses, people have basically defaulted back to like just conventional lectures and seminars. So I think in terms of any kind of sense of risk-taking and innovation and experimentation, you know, it's not been a good period. And so um, maybe subconsciously kind of keeping the conversations focused on those kinds of really amazing things people do being not tainted by these 
these bad feelings we all had about COVID was the way we went. Mm. Yeah, I think the pandemic does reward cookie cutter style teaching. You know, the pressure's there, the simplicity of the kind of typical lecture tutorial model. You know, it's easy to migrate that into a recorded lecture and a Zoom tutorial. Whereas I think those who have taken innovative risks and do things differently and in more boutique ways with novelty really struggle because you can't replicate that and you can't do it easily and you can't do it during a pandemic. Mm. So there's an urge and a push towards that default cookie cutter setting because that's how we get through the day. Uh, And that pressure is, is there and it's, it's, it's increasing in nature, you know? And I, I, I didn't, mean to uh, kind of insult anyone here. I think I've got the deepest respect and understanding for, you know, that situation was so difficult to handle for, for most people that, you know, just being able to teach a course in some form online was already a success, right? And, and to kind of all these other things like homeschooling and people being sick and other worries. And, you know, I think there's a tremendous achievement in, in, in moving kind of a whole sector within like one or two weeks into a full online, online mode. But of course, the problem is that we are now so far into that pandemic that, you know, people have, once you've shifted into this online mode in a kind of very basic way, Next year, when the same course comes about, you're very likely, we're still in the pandemic, to kind of keep teaching it like this. So in a way, um, maybe the podcast will will reinvigorate uh, people to to kind of take very, very small little things and just try it out. Well, I think the pandemic has changed the way that that we all work and university campuses, uh, no exception. Um, and thinking about all the things that we've talked about, so different channels of, of communication and how perhaps the pandemic has changed the way we communicate. Um, what do you think makes a happy campus? Mm, that's a great question. I'll go first with it. I have an idea too. I mean, I would get the no buzz already and talk about peer-to-peer learning in terms of teaching. There would be a big buzzer hit. But I actually think, you know, aside from that buzzword, happy campuses are made up in terms of teaching through the sandwich conversation. And if you are listening to this and you don't have someone that you can go for a beer, coffee, sandwich with and talk about your teaching, then you should look around for those people. And, you know, like us, you might want to formalise it and put some effort into it make something but the idea of i've been to seb's lectures uh, uh, going into your friend's lecture having a listen to what they do talking to them about things that make them passionate and then always thinking about what that means for you that to me makes up a happy campus you mentioned network just peer-to-peer friend conversations about teaching combined with the risk-taking element to actually put things in place that I know that's made me happy over and above the coffee and sandwich. Mm. I think the, the buzz you get on a good university campus when, when people are there, you know, and they kind of flock into a lecture theater or into a tutorial and, and something really special happens. And you can, you know, like these moments, we've all been there 
they are rare but when there is something really special in the air and you feel like here is like this this just wonderful situation where people who leave that room will look at a particular thing differently from how they looked at it when they entered and i mean yes we could replicate this online but it's it's not the same and you know we are human beings after all and i think what is but you know what is really essential i think to to really good teaching and for a very great student experience is um, the kind of personal relationship that you build with students to be you know have a relationship of, of trust of respect of collegiality and it's so much nicer and so much easier to be able to do this in person right um, so that could be the happy campus um, in a way but sometimes you know for a cap campus to be happy Hmm. maybe it sometimes also needs to be unhappy or maybe uncomfortable, right? It's not always hunky-dory. I think a happy campus, campus is one where people feel that they are really being introduced to whole different universes and worlds. And that's in a way the task that we have as teachers. And if you do not get the rug pulled out underneath your feet, in the course of your studies, then we, we are not creating a happy campus. Well, I think that's an interesting thought uh, to end on. So perhaps we'll, um, we'll finish there. Um, do either of you have any final um, remarks that you'd like to make? Oh, just thanks for having us. It was an absolute pleasure. And as is always the case, uh, Seb's passion carries me along. Wonderful. <laughs> well yeah yeah i think i think over the years since l has come out here with his family i think he's become less uh, grumpy i always say you know but um you can be very happy if you're grumpy and l is a, is, a, is a good example here no but i think what i wanted just to say is that um if you happen to listen to our podcast um please do get in touch we'd love to hear from you right we are we are only experimenting we are only academics who have started this and we are always open towards all sorts of ideas and suggestions. Could you tell us where we can find the podcast? Yeah, if you just Google Higher Ed Heroes, you will find our website. You will find us on um, any really normal uh, podcast provider, be this like um, Apple or Google or Spotify and like 15 others. And you find us on Twitter and on Facebook. Just look for Higher Ed Heroes. You see gray-haired Elle and gray-haired me, then you know you're in the right spot. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure um, speaking to you both. So thank you, um, Sebastian Kempf and Alastair Stark, for your time speaking about Higher Ed Heroes for the Times Higher Education Podcast. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.